Welcome to Clear Thinking, a GPS for the Christian mind, teaching you how to think, not just what to think. This is Joe Aguirre with theologian and philosopher Kenneth Samples. On today's podcast, part two on the human soul. Ken's been exploring a historic Christian view of the soul. And Ken, it might be good for us to have a bit of a recap uh, on what we covered last time. And we have some more questions to consider today. I think that this is a very important topic. Um, You know, classically, historically, Christianity has said that human beings are a unity of body and soul. And I think that's clearly the focus in Scripture. But it is very important because Christians also speak about how the body and the soul will relate uh, to the worlds to come. So uh, usually Christianity has argued that upon death, the body and soul will be divided for a temporary period. And then at the uh, the eternal state, there'll be the resurrection of the body. So I want to talk a little bit about, um, again, kind of summarizing what we what we mean by a soul, and uh, then we'll move to some more specific questions. All right, that sounds good. Well, since you introduced that uh, topic, what do we mean by a soul? Yeah, I, I like what Charles Taliaferro says here. He says that a soul is an immaterial center of personal identity, an immaterial center of personal identity. So, The soul is not a physical thing. The soul is different from the body in that it is immaterial or non-physical, but it also kind of anchors who we are as persons. I like to think that we have uh, a immaterial side to our being and then a material side. The material would be the body, uh, the brain, etc., Uh, but the soul would relate to the immaterial elements. So uh, we talk about our mind, we talk about uh, our consciousness. Uh, I think that is such a critical uh, distinction. Joe, maybe an important point too is to just review briefly uh, these Hebrew and Greek words. Obviously, the Old Testament is written primarily in Hebrew. New Testament is in Koine Greek. So the word body in Hebrew, uh, the word basar denotes kind of a bodily flesh. The Greek New Testament talks about soma, uh, and we get the psychosomatic, right? Psyche, mind, body type of issue. Uh, The term soul in Hebrew is nefesh, the Greek word is suke, and then uh, spirit in Hebrew is ruach, and the Greek is pneuma. So that's kind of a, a, a perspective on those. I also think it's important to appreciate uh, one more time that, you know, as a point of departure, the Bible looks at the unity of human beings. We We like to make these distinctions, and they are important distinctions to make, but we're a unity. Um, I think it's a mistake to say, Joe, that I I have a body, but I'm a soul. No, um, I am a body and soul. I'm the unity of that body and soul. Um, 
sometimes you sometimes Christians can give the impression that my soul kind of floats around in my body. I think it's much more careful and and more consistent with Scripture to say, no, there God has brought forth in the creation of me a unity of body and soul, and um, that so that's kind of our our taking off point uh, there. Now. In the previous show, we talked uh, very briefly about how the soul relates to the image of God. And I think that uh, Genesis 2-7 is a critical passage here. It reads, Then the Lord God, uh, Yahweh Elohim in the Hebrew, Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. So. God creates humans from the dust of the ground. He also creates animals from the dust of the ground, but humans have the breath of life. That that breath of life comes from the divine. I see that as connecting to the the image of God. And uh, so that's a a critical uh, point about the two of those. Now, we also talked a little bit briefly about mind-body dualism, um, the idea that uh, think of mind there in as we've been talking about soul, mind-body dualism, our mind and body have a union. Uh, we can distinguish them, uh, but we ourselves cannot separate them. And so I, I think the Bible teaches a basic mind-body dualism. Now, having said that, it seems to me, Joe, there's an increasing number of Christian philosophers who are uncomfortable with the traditional idea of body and soul. They think maybe that trades too much on Platonism, Greek philosophy, uh, and they believe, therefore, that they believe in a type of materialism or physicalism. So we're just an animated body. I think the biggest criticism I might bring of that is what happens then at death. The traditional view is that our body and soul are separated at death temporarily. We go into the intermediate state. We're conscious in the presence of Christ, awaiting the resurrection of the body. So if we are just a body, do we go to a state of extinction uh, and only sort of wake up, if you will, uh, at the new creation? So I think the body-soul um, dualism, now not a Descartian, I think just a basic body-soul dualism, in my mind, fits better with what we see uh, in, in Scripture. And we talked just briefly, and I want to come back to this a little bit later, where do souls come from? Does God create a fresh soul? Or is it possible that just as God has given a man and a woman the capacity to uh, uh, bring forth a child, is it possible that somehow through that production uh, that the soul comes into existence. This is called traducianism. I think most people in Christian history would hold something like creationism. 
But the challenge there is that these issues are not kind of spelled out uh, in any explicit way. So we're kind of left to uh, to, to form judgments about uh, some of these types of issues. But I think that then brings us back, Joe, to a sixth question, and I'm going to let you uh, ask that question. Great. Thank you for that recap, Ken. I appreciate it. Uh, you've talked about this one already, but let me put it in, in this way. Um, I've been to funerals where uh, the person who died was a believer in Christ, and sometimes it was said about that person, uh, particularly if they've had a, 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 a troubled end, you know, they suffered in the hospital or what have you. So-and-so has a new body now. They're, they're free from this one, and they've got a new one now. Uh, so that's the, the thought. And the question is, what happens to our body and soul at death? Yeah, and I think this is, you know, worth careful consideration. The Bible talks about eschatology. The word eschatos is Greek for last. The Bible does talk about the future. It talks about the end times, if you speak. We can talk about individual eschatology, what happens when Ken dies or what happens when Joe dies, or we can talk broadly about eschatology, what will happen to, to the world and the cosmos uh, in relationship to Christ's coming. I look at two particular passages. They're not terribly long, but I think they are clear. The first one is Philippians 1.21, and then continuing in 23 and 24, Paul says, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, that what, what do we benefit? What's the gain in dying? Uh, in verse 23, he continues, I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. So this idea that uh, Paul says to live is Christ and to die is gain, but he says, I'm torn. I want to remain with you to, to minister to you. Um, and and yet he also makes the point that, uh, uh, you know, it's necessary that I remain in the body. I think this passage is clearly teaching that upon death, Joe, we are conscious beings. If we went to a state of extinction or a, a state of soul sleep, how is that better? To be in the presence of Christ, to be in the presence of our Lord, to love him, to worship him, uh, to, to be in the presence of the saints, I can see how that would be uh, uh, far better. Uh, so I think here we see kind of the intermediate state where we're a union of body and soul. Death, there is a temporary separation from soul and body. And we exist in the presence of Christ. We love him. We see our loved ones. We worship together. Uh, and yet we are not totally complete. I mentioned last time that the great Catholic thinker Thomas Aquinas, he said in the intermediate state, we're not fully human because his conception of full humanness is always one that's enfleshed. And so it's the uh, eternal state where we take the new body. So you could say, to kind of speak uh, 
you know, in the present and then in the future, the people that are with Christ don't yet have their resurrection bodies. That will come at the return of Christ. And then there is debate about the sequence of events. But mere Christian eschatology is Jesus returns in glory. He resurrects all people, uh, saints and sinners, uh, those who are no Christ and those who don't. Uh, there is a judgment. There is the creation of the eternal state. And then there is life eternal. Now, another passage here is 2 Corinthians 5, 8. Paul says, we are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Away from the body. I think these passages teach a basic intermediate state. That death, there is a temporary separation of soul and body. And um, I, I think, again, and we'll come back to this issue, and it's a, it is a debated issue, but I think soul and spirit are the same reality. Um, I, I think when Jesus says, love God with your heart, mind, soul, and strength, he's not dividing us into multiple parts. He's just underscoring love God with your entire being. So I think these passages are, are crucial. I reject the idea that we're a mere body. I think a basic mind-body dualism is taught in Scripture. Hmm. A related question that we've been talking about as well, but I'll ask it directly. How will humans be constituted in eternity? And Ken, I'm thinking of Christ and his resurrection and then his ascension. Uh, he There he had a body of, of sorts. So how do we think through that? Yes, I mean... When we think about what will our bodies be like, or how will be how will we be constituted uh, in eternity, I immediately think the way you do. Let's look to the resurrection of Christ, because even people uh, in the older New Testament who had been resurrected, think of Lazarus, for example, he had to die again. So when we look at the resurrection of Christ. Um, the apostles recognize him. It, it is the same body, but yet it's different. Um, it, uh, Jesus says, you know, look at my wounds, stick your finger in your side. Uh, so it's, it's the same body, but yet now it's a, it is described at one point as being a heavenly body or a spiritual body. I like the way uh, some theologians describe it in this context, Joe, that with regard to our body right now and our future resurrection body, uh, and will parallel Christ's body, Christ's body uh, before his death and then his resurrection body after his death, there was both continuity and discontinuity. It is the same body. It's not a phantom. It's not a completely different person. It is a body of a physical body, but it has been transformed. And uh, so there will be both continuity between Jesus's uh, a human human body before his death and continuity with the body after in his resurrection. 
but there's also discontinuity. And um, it's hard to imagine what that would be, what that would be like, but Jesus ascended into heaven. Um, I think we can draw biblically the inference that when Christ returns, he will have a physical body. In fact, I think it's correct to simply say Jesus will now forever uh, be both the God and man, and part of his humanity is having a real body. Mm-hmm. So in the future, we'll be reunited. That resurrection body will have many d- new facets, undoubtedly. Obviously, it won't die. Um you know, there there will be no pain, um, and and yet uh, it will still be us. It will there'll still be a, a a continuity of who we are now and who we will be then. Mm, yeah, you know, it occurs to me as you've been explaining this idea that uh, maybe I have underappreciated uh, God's creation of of human bodies. Uh, he called them good. He called everything he created good. But uh, Jesus came and took one of our bodies. Uh, not not one of our bodies. He, he, uh, in the incarnation, he took upon a human body. So it just makes me think that uh, maybe I've been not appreciating as much uh, what God has put into creating bodies. Uh, we've, we're going to have our bodies a long time and God's the one who created them and gave us a soul to boot. And I, I think when you when we look at Scripture, I mean, when when Paul talks about uh, the sin of gluttony or the sin of fornication, he talks about, you know, God has given you a body and he, and because he is the creator, uh, you are to use your body appropriately. You're to care for your body. You're not to engage and elicit sexual relations. And, and I think you're exactly right. I think that our bodies are on loan from God. He is the creator. And, and in his great wisdom, he has brought us together with, uh, with a soul. Now, you know, when we had Dave Rogstad with us on our program, we would talk about, well, what will be the physics of the new body? Um, and some have speculated that maybe the new, maybe the resurrected body will be both a resurrection and yet some form of new creation. Uh, exactly how all of that works out, um, I don't know. Uh, but there is the idea that uh, this will be the same body. And yet, somehow, it's fundamentally different, just as we see in the person of Christ. Yeah. Well, we've talked about uh, this being a historic Christian view of the soul. And with that in mind, you've already mentioned some of the ancients uh, or people from the medieval time and church fathers and what they thought. But how about St. Augustine? He had an analogy for the soul. Describe that for us. Yes. This comes out of his uh, his most popular and most influential book, uh, The Confessions. And part of the intention is for St. Augustine to kind of tell his story. It's a it's kind of his testimony, if you will. Uh, Confessions is kind of comes in a triple sense. 
He's confessing his life of sin. He's confessing a newfound faith, but he's also giving a confession of the glory of God. And uh, I like his statement about the soul. He says, uh, think, and, and here I think he's using analogical language. He's, he's encouraging us to think in terms of an analogy that our soul is like a house. And uh, when he talks about that house, he says that it's very small, it's very narrow, and he also says that it's disordered. Uh, it needs cleaning up. It's dirty. And uh, he then asks the question, uh, you know, who will be the one that will, will uh, broaden that house? Who will be the one that will cleanse my soul? And I uh, undoubtedly, I think, uh, Augustine probably had in mind some of the words of Jesus that in my father's house, there are many mansions. And so we kind of think about uh, our future existence in, in terms of being like a house. I mean, I sometimes when I think about a worldview, I think of a worldview living room. And there are certain things that occupy that living room, so to speak. So I'm I'm using an analogy to try to make this something maybe I can visualize or, or, or capture. And I like what Augustine says there. What, what does sin do to our soul? Well, I, I think it's probably proper to say it does. It, it shrinks it. It uh, withers it. Um, it disorders it. And so our, our house becomes dirty. It becomes disordered. It's small. It's ugly. And what God does through redemption is he gives us a new birth. Our soul begins to be reordered. I mean, you can think of sin, and this is the way many of the great ancient uh, Christian thinkers thought. People like Augustine, Aquinas, Luther, Calvin, uh, Cranmer, others. Uh, they would say that what sin does is it not only causes us to do bad things, but it causes us to misuse good things. And so food is a good thing, but what do we do to it? We eat too much. Uh, sex is a good thing, but what, we, what do we do to it? We ask sex to give us something it can't give us. Uh, money is a good thing, so we we become greedy. So there is this kind of disordering effect, and I think it I think it probably is a fair analogy to say that when God comes into our life through a relationship, a saving relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, He begins to clean up the inside of our being. Um, our life begins to become ordered. And, um, you know, the, the, the dirt uh, begins to be cleaned away. And the narrowness of that, um, you know, you could, you could kind of conceive of it this way, that um, because our soul has been uh, deflated, if you will, God's spirit begins to broaden it so that that uh, home begins to be larger, uh, more order, cleaner. And God is 
God is working in that kind of context. And I like that. It gave me a way of kind of thinking about some of these ideas. It 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 made me think about sin. It made me think as well about God has changed the structure, the inner structure of my life. And um, I like that. I, I've always found that to be meaningful and, and very helpful. Yeah. Uh, Ken, by way of review where we are now then, um, does it uh, seem to be the case from Scripture that though we are a, a union of body and soul, that there will be an intermediate state where we our souls are in the presence of Christ, but our bodies are not yet resurrected, resurrected until the final resurrection. And then we will be in our eternally constituted state. Is that kind of a that's, recap of some yeah, of what we that's say? that it has basically been the historic Christian position that uh, we're a unity of body and soul at death, a temporary separation. Uh, our soul is in the presence of Christ. We are conscious. We await the resurrection where we'll be enfleshed again with a body that is like Christ's uh, resurrected body. Uh, again, there are people who differ with elements of that, but I think uh, what we're setting forth here is more of a classical or historic Christian view. Yeah. Uh, I have a final question to ask on the relationship between the Christian view and then uh, views like uh, philosophical or psychological views. But before that, on this idea of uh, the union of, of body and soul, you talked about how sin affects the soul, and you also talked about how sin uh, disorders good things, it, it seems that there's an effect on the body as well. Sometimes we think of a person as uh, living a hard life, but is that a kind of an innocuous way of saying that uh, it, it's been a sinful life? In other words, does living a certain way affect our body and our soul? That's a that's a great question, and you know, we, psychology talks about psychosomatic illnesses. Um, I have done a lot of reading in light of the pandemic, um, where you know people experience anxiety and depression. Uh, it then affects the body in various ways, and so there is a connectedness between our mind our, or our consciousness or our soul and the body. Um, you have psychosomatic uh, types of illnesses. Um, and so I would say an affirmative yes. what what I think is what I think is interesting, uh, again, St. Augustine used this expression, but so did the Protestant reformer Martin Luther. They used a Latin expression, incurvitas se, that the effect of sin is that we are curved in on ourselves. We are created to be, uh, to be outward, pointed toward God, to love God and to love our neighbor, but sin has this warping effect where we're curved in on ourselves. I think Thomas Aquinas used the expression, 
that a sign of original sin is our self-obsession, that it's difficult for us at times to step outside ourselves and be other-oriented or God-oriented. Instead, we become curved in on ourselves, warped in. And I'm highlighting that a little bit when I talked about the uh, Augustine's analogy of a of a house that it it's strained, it's crooked, um, and all of those kinds of things. And undoubtedly, um, I was reading literature a few months ago where there were a number of uh, psychiatrists who were talking uh, largely about the idea that negative self-talk uh, causes psychological problems. And so the things that you think about and, you know, sometimes people have rushing thoughts or they, they experience a, a situation where they exaggerate uh, the negative things um, and this tends to affect the mind, which it tends to affect the body. And, you know, you can see people who have severe mental illness. You can see oftentimes the effects of the body. I, I'll give you a personal um, uh, uh, observation. My dad, uh, when he died, was 66 years old. Now, I'm, I'm at the time of this recording, I'm about 65 and a half. But I think if you looked at pictures of my dad, he was much older than that. Hmm. Um, I think his World War II experiences, I think living during the Depression, you know, he took a, a, a he had to deal with a lot of difficult issues. And um, I think it not only affects our mind, but it does affect our body. And again, I, I, I think it's a mistake uh, to think, well, I'm a soul who happens to have a body. When I had a major illness, and you remember it, Joe, because you came and visited me in the hospital, um, I remember the pain that I had in my head. And I part of my reflection later was, I have not given enough recognition to my body. Uh, I'm not just, I, I'm not a soul who happens to float around in this body. I am my body, but I'm my body in union with a soul. And um, so there, there's no doubt about it. I, I think it's, it's clearly beyond doubt, both scientifically, psychologically, that our mind or our soul, our inner life affects our physical body. No doubt about it. Mm, wonderful. A final question. Again, we've been kind of talking about it, but uh, just to uh, state it, what is the relationship then between the Christian view of the soul and that found in disciplines like philosophy and psychology? Yeah, I I really do think that this is an important question. It's kind of a two books question. I, I used to I used to say that uh, when I really began to take my Christianity seriously when I was a young college student, uh, when I go to school and study philosophy, we never talked about faith. But when I go to church, we wouldn't talk about reason. We just talk about the spiritual dynamics. And I was interested in both. I wanted a, a life of reason and a life of faith. And 
uh, I, at, at that point in my life, had a bit of a crisis because I thought, wow, I don't seem to fit. Uh, fortunately, I had some really good professors who said, Ken, let me introduce you to St. Augustine. Let, let me introduce you to Blaise Pascal. Um, I think, Joe, that psychology, by and large, uh, owes itself to Christianity. W why do I say that? Well, think, think again, psychology, psuche, um, right? Uh, psuche has the Greek soul. So psychology talks about a conscious mind and then the subconscious mind, the outer and the inner, the inner you. I don't think that uh, modern psychology was created by people like Freud. I, I think probably a more profound way would say St. Augustine, because what you discover in the confessions is he's kind of reflecting on the inner life. He's he's talking about the, you know the inner person, and when he talks about being a sinner, how how sin has curved us in on ourselves, he talks about the idea that that sin has affected our our very way of thinking, our being, if you will, and he also looks at the inner motivations. You know, why did I do the things that I did when I stole those pears? Um, it wasn't because I was hungry, but there was something exciting and titillating about doing something that's illicit. Um, I think I think Augustine was really kind of developing uh, psychology. Now, part of the two books challenge is um, how do you take maybe disciplines that are that are not directly Christian and relate them to Christian theology, like psychology, like philosophy, or like science. I mean, you know, right at the heart of the RTB message is this two books model that, that science tells us important things about the nature of the world. And uh, scripture tells us uh, important things about the nature of human beings uh, and those two books can be can be brought together. But I I personally think that psychology and philosophy uh, have a, a both of those disciplines have a deep connection to Christianity. It's not that there wasn't philosophy before Christianity. Obviously, the great Greek thinkers, uh, the great Chinese thinkers, Confucius, uh, and undoubtedly, there were people who thought about an inner you, but I think Christianity has done a lot uh, to bring these disciplines to bear. And so much so today, Joe, that, you know, the idea that you can attempt to try to heal uh, people's inner pain, whether that healing might be um, you know, changing the uh, the structure of 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 the brain, the chemicals in the brain. We talk about uh, taking uh, medication that uh, you know that that combats depression, or um, you know, just kind of talk therapy, allowing someone to get these thoughts out into the open. 
to to be able to evaluate them, not to think uh, negatively, but to kind of think through these kinds of things. Well, these are these are types of healing, and um, I think we we have soul problems. In fact, let me go a step further here. Uh, I think it was Jean-Jacques Rousseau who said, most men live lives of quiet desperation. Now, I, I, I don't know exactly what he meant by that, but I know what I mean by that. And that is, I think, I think people often feel uh, an inner sense of angst. They feel forlorn. Um, I think human beings often struggle with meaning and purpose and significance in their life. Uh, they struggle with trying to, to live a, a full or fulfilled life. Well, you know, during the holidays, um, the holidays are a time where you're supposed to be grateful and happy and uh, joyful. Well, people have a lot of inner pain. And I, I think there is opportunities to reach out to people with the gospel message and with the idea that God cares for people's inner pain. God not only cares for you as a being, but he cares about you as a person and that there is potential healing ju just as our body can be, uh, can sometimes be healed uh, sometimes the difficulties that become part of a person's soul and mind, uh, you know, there, there's therapy for the mind just as there is therapy for the body. So I think Christianity has a lot to do with this idea. And um, yeah, some psychology and philosophy is clearly anti-Christian, but not all of it. Some of it can be quite compatible. Uh, with with Christianity. And uh, again, I think Augustine is a great example of somebody who's trying to trying to delve into the depths of their being. what what is it? How has my life become off track? How has my life been disordered? And then how does a saving relationship with Christ not only change my relationship with God, but, begins to uh, sanctify my life. And so I think there's a lot of riches here, Joe. And, mm. um, you know, I like to encourage people to read really good material uh, when it comes to these areas. All right. What what have you written about this that can help us? I uh, there's a there's a number of sources that I like. Obviously, I would encourage uh, all our listeners to consider reading the confessions. Uh, you might want to look for a translation or an edition that you might enjoy more than than others. Um, some of my articles on the um, RTB website, as well as my book, Classic Christian Thinkers. I list four versions that you can consider reading. But I, I also think that there are some very helpful books um, that, that, you know, kind of talk about our, our sinful condition, uh, that talk about how our mind and soul have been 
influenced by various things. Um, there is a title, and I'm not sure I can give you the authors off the top of my head, but there is a book I recommend on Christian psychology that I include in all of my blog articles uh, where it where it relates. And, and uh, a good source would be my book, Seven Truths That Changed the World. I have lots of recommendations under the chapter of what are human beings and the image of God. That would be, that'd be a great source because there are a lot of other sources listed. Wonderful. Thank you for that. And by the way, for people listening, if you haven't read Augustine's Confessions, please do so. You'll, you'll find yourself thinking, as I have when I've read it a couple of times, it's like, how does he know so much about me? <laughs> and, yeah. and the whole thing is a, is a prayer to God, but yeah. it seems like he's praying on, on our behalf. <laughs> That's right. You see yourself in there. Yeah. 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 So good stuff. All right, Ken, this has been fascinating. We're going to go a third podcast. Can you tease a little bit about what you want to bring up on the third one? Yeah. In this third program, I'd, I'd like to spend a little bit more time. I want to make a case for the dichotomy position. Um, you know, are we a are we a unity of body and soul or or body, soul, and spirit? So I want to I want to make a basic biblical case for that. And I want to spend a little bit more time talking about traditionism and creationism. Um, I, I think those are kind of interesting and controversial ideas. All right. Thanks for that. And we'll look forward to the next podcast. Be sure to share the link on this one. If you've benefited from it, tell somebody about it and pass the link along. Let us know your comments and questions. You can reach out to Ken via X. That's at RTB underscore K samples. And we'll be glad to read your comment here. Get clear thinking sent to your device by subscribing to the Reasons to Believe podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and most podcast services. For Ken Samples, this is Joe Aguirre with a reminder that the goal of apologetics is not victory, but truth. Thanks for listening and join us for the next edition of Clear Thinking. Thank you for listening. Your prayers and financial support are reaching people with reasons for faith in Jesus Christ, our Creator and Savior. To allow Reasons to Believe programs like this to continue, make your gift today at Reasons.org.